This is District Sentinel Radio, the newscast of record for the left. I am Sam Sachs. I'm Sam Knight. We are broadcasting out of Washington, D.C. Check out the website, districtsentinel.com. It's Wednesday, which means it's time for another edition of Chip Chat, where we're joined by journalist Chip Gibbons. Hey, Chip. Hello. Welcome back. Welcome back. We're doing a little something special this week. Sam Knight acquired some documents via FOIA that we want to bring you in to talk about, Chip. Uh, First, Sam, set up what you've received. So I filed a FOIA with the Minnesota National Guard for their rules of engagement for the mission that Governor Tim Waltz sent them on in the uh, to put down the uh, uprising after the George Floyd protests, after the killing of George Floyd. Um, I filed for the rules of engagement. They replied that uh, the rules of engagement are, is actually a term that only refers to overseas military operations but they nevertheless decided to give me their standard rules for use of force or uh, their SRUF, as they call it in their, uh, in their military jargon. And um, they gave it to me 13 pages unredacted. And I suspect part of the reason that is, uh, and I suspect part of the reason for that is because it's very generalized and it says that basically these rules can change at any time for any specific mission uh, for whatever reason. And so, uh, yeah, basically they're very generalized and hence the uh, release to me, all 13 pages unredacted. So, uh, Chip, did you have any uh, uh, takeaways looking at the documents? So I read over them two or three times now um and my takeaway is that a lot of them are fairly standard articulations for the general legal standards that govern use of force in a domestic law enforcement context use of force is governed by the fourth amendment people might be surprised to hear that um the reason for that is because a use of force by law enforcement is considered a seizure of a person so if they uh, shoot you unnecessary, they have uh, unreasonably seized your person. That is a very bizarre sort of legal way of, of approaching it. But just looking through some of the specific rules, you can't shoot a fleeing felon. That's, of course, from a Supreme Court decision. Uh, when you can use deadly or lethal force, they're fairly in line with what what the courts have articulated over the years. I know that the one thing that jumped out as Sam is concerning, and I I, I do sort of share some of these concerns, is with the arrest and detention um, part. They explicitly tell people not to read Miranda rights. And while that's troubling, the reason given is, of course, that they're not supposed to be interrogating um, suspects or people like that. Uh, The Miranda warnings, according to the courts, only apply um, in what the courts called custodial interrogation. So that means you're in custody. A reasonable person would not feel free to leave. Uh, When the courts think a reasonable person would feel free to leave is um, quite a story in and of itself. 
and then also a they're asking you questions that are designed to uh, elicit incrim an incriminating answer. Uh, once again, the courts have interpreted that in a very law enforcement friendly way. One of my my favorite uh, Supreme Court cases on this subject, I'm blanking on the name. It involves a suspect who is alleged to have left a gun in a playground, and the police are driving around the cop car talking about how a lot of children with disabilities play at that playground. Um, it would be a real shame if one of them got a hold of the gun and shot themselves, and then he goes, wait, I'll tell you where it is. And then he wasn't read his Miranda rights, and the courts ruled that was not an interrogation because their statements were not designed to elicit an incriminating response. Uh, on, on the flip side, though, in a different, different, not to go too far off on the inconsistent rulings of the Supreme Court, in a different case, though, they ruled where someone was told it'd be that girl supposedly murdered who didn't have a Christian burial, that that was a coerced confession, because anyone being told that someone was denied a Christian burial would, of course, you know, instantly confess, whereas, you know, uh, potentially murdering a live child with disabilities with a weapon is apparently not not inducing you to confess it's a very strange world they they live in up at the supreme court um i would be far more concerned about the uh child with disability being injured by gun violence than i would be christian burial but i am also an atheist so uh just a generally well, ungodly guy i guess well i i think the miranda rights thing jumped out at me because on one hand here you have the national guard uh, being asked to perform domestic law enforcement operations while at the same time um, trying to jump through certain procedural loopholes so that while they are basically being cops, they're not being cops as per um, strict legal definitions. And, uh, for example, uh, the they're instructed not to search and seizure not to search and seize to comply with the Fourth Amendment. Uh, the fourth, the text of the Fourth Amendment is quoted in the SRUF, uh, but then it says it is authorized uh, if a person presents an immediate danger or uh, to protect safety of people in the area, to prevent the destruction of property, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I guess that is pretty standard, but I, for me, it gets a little more troubling reading that in the context of the addendum, tab A, Minnesota criminal statutes that may apply. And there's some obvious ones like assault, robbery, theft, arson, damage to property, uh, et cetera. Then you have stuff like disorderly contact, presence at unlawful assembly, concealing identity, public nuisance, and I don't know. It, it, it just, I guess it's a, it's a miracle things weren't worse in the crackdown. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to say this isn't concerning because, I mean, the state of the Fourth Amendment is extremely concerning and extremely distressing. But, like, once again, like, over the years, the courts have authorized a number of exceptions to when the Fourth Amendment requires a warrant, including exigent circumstances, search pursuant to arrest, uh, things like that. And while this doesn't articulate, as far as I can tell, any of the specific legal language that the Supreme Court has used. It, it, some of it seems to be referring to some of the same general concepts. So I, I, I do question, I, I, I don't necessarily know if this is a standard that is less 
than what the Supreme Court has decided the Fourth Amendment requires. Uh, that's a very low standard. Um, the Supreme Court has sort of, I think someone else described it as uh, killing the Fourth Amendment with death by a thousand paper cuts, um, which is, you know, basically what they've done. So, it, it, I mean, from like a legal standpoint, it doesn't jump out at me as being like, I mean, the only thing that is sort of like the special orders may require, and it's not clear what special orders are. Um, but the search has to be limited to the perceived immediate danger. That's sort of getting into the exigent circumstances or sort of like the searching for like a, a weapon when you're detaining someone. So it, it isn't it isn't getting that, I don't know, it, it seems to be within the letter of the law, which obviously I don't think is good, but just sure. that constitutional analysis, nothing is jumping out at me. Yeah, I guess uh, to be clear, I'm, I'm not necessarily suggesting that the Minnesota National Guard are um, instructing their um, their cert, the the guardsmen to do anything illegal. Just that reading the through the legalities of it, and it seems like, damn, um, by letter of the law, it seems like they can just get away with anything. Yeah, yeah. I want. mean, we can uh, switch switch topics here. I just want to note something uh, that that I chuckled a bit to myself when I read these uh, use of force guidelines. Uh, is where uh, National Guard members are reminded that uh, no private weapons are allowed, nor no private ammunitions are allowed. You can only use weapons issued by the Guard. Uh, curious why that needs to be in writing and how often Guard members in the past tried to like bring their own custom-made skins on their rifles and stuff. That's a really good point. And the other thing that jumped out to me was one of the first things in this document is that they do not limit the inherent right to self-defense of guard members, right? So they have all this stuff about use of force. In a, they're not law enforcement, but it's very similar to sort of use of force in the law enforcement Fourth Amendment type context. But then you have this sort of carve out that it doesn't limit the inherent right of self-defense. I, I assume that's self-defense defined at either the common law level or defined by Minnesota state law, um, which, you know, obviously you can't limit that right, I suppose, but it is a very weird thing to start with, in my opinion. Staying on the issue of use of government force here, uh, yeah. we saw on Tuesday morning uh, the Department of Justice resume federal executions for the first time in 17 years uh an inmate in indiana was uh executed by lethal injection following a, a support a supreme court ruling in the middle of the night uh chip your your thoughts on what we're seeing uh, transpire here with uh the resumption of the death penalty at the federal level i mean this is really a very dark day right i mean i don't i don't personally believe in the death penalty in any circumstances i'm not going to say you know daniel lewis lee the person who was murdered by the government was a great person by all accounts he was a a white supremacist though there's some you I do think, not have to hand it to daniel lewis lee let's make no, that clear I, I don't but but you know there's there's his um accomplice who i believe there's some dispute about which one of them actually carried out the killings only got life in prison without parole whereas he was sentenced to death he maintained he wasn't the one who, who actually did the physical killings i assume he was convicted under a, like a felony murder type rule um 
And it's just really very horrific. You know, there's no place for the death penalty in like the criminal law context at, at this point in our nation's history or that of any other nation. And to see sort of Barr and Trump resume it because there's this sort of long history in this country of, for lack of a better term, you know, almost right wing populist sort of using sort of the death penalty as this sort of very disturbing wedge issue to rile people up and, and, you know, get political support. Um, so this is a clear, you know, murder of a person as a political stunt. Uh, the, the way it was carried out was really very disturbing and, and, and just sort of mind blowing in that, you know, there was a stay of execution issued. So first of all, the family opposed this execution and they had tried to stop it on the grounds that they wanted to bear witness to this because they opposed it and that they couldn't, they didn't want to travel because of COVID, you know, so there's all these issues about how do you have a socially distanced execution, which I was reading about before it happened. And that's just like, I mean, planning a socially distanced execution during a pandemic is like a mind, mind numbing proposition it's just terribly ghoulish, but, and they, you know, they tried to stop it saying they couldn't travel because of COVID. Uh, that was her now, but there was some travel uh, challenge, to the execution method. Um, a, a judge issued a stay and appellate court uh, kept this day in place. And then at two and the execution was originally supposed to happen at um, four o'clock PM on Monday and it was stayed. And then at two 30 in the morning, 2.30 in the morning, the Supreme Court comes with this five to four opinion. And the, the five part of the opinion is unsigned, but we can deduce who, who it was from based on the dissents. And and just, just to authorize the execution. So then they reschedule it for an hour and a half later at four o'clock in the morning. But there's still pending appeals. And they leave this man strapped to the gurney with the curtain closed for four hours as bar... And, and, and his creepy crew try to, like, you know, get rid of the last-minute legal obstacles. And they don't even notify the attorney when, when the final one, the final blockage of the execution is, is lifted. And they just sort of, you know, then have him still strapped to the gurney and then, you know, pull back the curtains and murder him. Like, it, it's very, very, um, like, dead of the night, very quick. It's very sort of shocking especially since, you know, this matter had already gone on for so long. And I was talking to other people. Do you ever remember a situation where the Supreme Court, you know, makes a decision in the middle of the night on an execution and they call everyone back in the middle of the night, not even waiting to the next day? And, and, and you know, no one I've spoken to can ever recall something like this. And there's also some question about the warrant, the death warrant, because, you know, not that it really matters at this junction, but the death warrant expired at 12 o'clock on Monday. So in, in, in theory, this was a warrantless execution, right? They didn't even bother to issue a new warrant for it. They just carried it out very quickly in the dead of night after the Supreme Court did this thing in the middle of the night. And it's just, I, I don't, I don't understand the whole thing. Yeah. And you, you throw in the fact that these these drugs the the lower court initially put this uh this execution on hold because lots of medical experts and witnesses to previous executions had testified to the effect of these drugs and how they could cause suffering and the supreme court basically 
takes those that testimony and evidence and says, well, the government presented uh, opposing testimony. So sorry, we're going to sign off on this. I mean, the Supreme Court has been really horrific in their death penalty decisions on the lethal injection. And, and this was and this. This did, you know, come down on party lines too, five, four, not uh, an issue you often think about uh, of the Supreme Court determining on on party lines. But it is now. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Kennedy used to be the swing vote on the death penalty. Um, People might not remember this, but in 2002, 2003, he ruled you couldn't execute minors. And there was this huge right wing backlash. And he got all these death threats and stuff because said you couldn't kill children. Or was it children or was it people with mental handicaps? I don't know. He he ruled both of those, but one of them provoked a bunch of uh, out like backlash from from right-wing people i believe this is one of the impetuses for the justice sunday these sorts of weird evangelical anti-supreme court rallies that took place um and and tom delay was very angry that he had done research on the internet he was i don't know if i don't even remember who tom delay was uh this feels like a different lifetime ago but the 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 dancing with the stars guy (laughs) did he go on dancing with the stars yeah, yeah, he was. Uh, Are was... you thinking of Rick Perry? No, they both did. Didn't oh. Tom Delay get put on criminal trial? Remember, he yes. had the really ridiculous mugshot. He was, was he the? What was Scott? He was a Republican congressman who was in the leadership. I forget what. Yeah, he was the whip. Name. He was the whip, and he got very angry about Kennedy's decision in the case ruling you could not execute children. And he started this whole sort of backlash that the media labeled the war on judges. And I mean, Kennedy started getting like really in, inflamed death threats. And the whole impetus for this was don't kill children. Um, and he had this really sort of over the top. I used to listen to Air America radio at the time. So that's why I can remember all of this, um, unfortunately. Um was just like he used the internet, the internet, like just Tom Delay on the floor of the house having a meltdown because a Supreme Court judge used the internet to find facts, which shouldn't do. I, I, guess. I guess not. I mean, on the one hand, you know, if if like Alito was like, well, I read the Wikipedia article on lethal injections, I would be having a meltdown. <laughs> but also, like, I used the internet and discovered that, like, you know very few countries murdered children um seems kind of unusual some of these um these execute the backlash against using quote-unquote foreign law or international law in u.s courts comes from she saw a whole bunch of weird like uh local legislation ban like sharia law and then also foreign international law when sotomayor was confirmed the republicans kept asking about the use of quote-unquote, foreign law. And once again, mm. coming from two cases, one about life without parole for juveniles, one about life without, one about the death sentence for juveniles, where Kennedy, in order to determine whether something was cruel or unusual, looked to sort of general international norms as like a soft, like persuasive authority, not even a binding authority, but just to sort of like, along with what the majority of states does do. Um, and like it, it prompted a whole bunch of backlashes from the right. It's taking me back to the Agenda 21 days Lord. when uh, that section of the right thought there was some 
nefarious UN agenda called do. Agenda 21. Still do. There's like that Facebook status thing, like 12 questions about COVID you should ask. And like question seven is, what is Agenda 21? And it's like, I don't know. What is Agenda 21? <laughs> You know, why not ask, like, you know, any, like, what's the weather outside? Like, a bunch of, like, non-sequitur questions, like, looped together, like, what is you and Agenda 21, and what does it have to do with COVID? And it's like, well, what does it have to do with COVID? With with regard quickly, or with regard briefly to these, uh, the timing of these executions that you spoke of, um, what do you think the, uh, the, impact of the election year has on these i mean this kind of reminds me of uh, of when bill clinton yes. during the uh, primary presided over an execution and tried to gain politically from it and probably did yeah so bill clinton when he was running for president in in 1992 and the democratic primary makes a big stunt out of leaving the campaign trail to go back to um Arkansas and sign the death warrant and preside over the execution of a man with a mental disability. Uh, he asked to save his dessert for after his execution from from the last meal, um, like really horrific stuff. And clearly was just about Clinton sort of using the death. And Clinton presided over a huge expansion of, of the uh, federal death penalty. Um, there's no federal death penalty from like 1972 to about 19. 88 89 maybe and even then it's it's very narrowly defined and then in like the 90s the joe biden crime bill and, and bill clinton just brings back the death penalty for any of the statutes that had it before that were struck down as unconstitutional as well as creates a whole bunch of new new death penalty offenses something like 90 new death penalty offenses or something like that like really very shocking expansion of the federal death penalty. And that was uh, part of Bill Clinton's political savvy. And, and that was a time when a lot of politicians were using sort of the issue of the death penalty, the issue of, you know, quote unquote, tough on crime to, to make political careers from themselves. And that's clearly the playbook that Donald Trump has been using uh, since 2015 when he first started running you know, he sounds an awful lot like George Wallace at times. Um, and, you know, in 2020, it just feels like rhetoric from another time. I don't know what political saliency this still has. You know, on the one hand, this seems like very out of touch rhetoric. But, you know, when the Supreme Court struck down the death penalty in the 70s, you know, majority of the country disapproved of the death penalty and then shortly after that there was this huge demagogic right-wing you know pseudo-populist campaign to give us back our death penalty and after that public support for the death penalty like just shot like to an all-time all-time high like really quick period of time where there's a dramatic reversal so you know on the one hand the type of language trump is using feels like it's out of a political a playbook from a different era, but on the other hand, you know, that playbook was manufactured by politicians from above. It was not something that organically came from below. So mm -hmm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, call it a day and rest easy. Chip Gibbons, policy director at Defending Rights and Dissent, host of the podcast 
still spying. That's still going on, right? Yeah, no, we, uh, Alex Vitale joined us for our last episode. Ooh, um, big episode. Yes, and then I conducted an interview with one of Fred, the lawyers for Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers, who interviewed survivors the night of the raid that killed Fred Hampton. That's going to premiere sometime in the next month. Well, yeah. I encourage everybody to check it out. This concludes another edition of Chip Chat. We didn't even get into to snacks. I, I've been eating some Nilla wafers this week. Today's not really a day for snacking, I don't feel All like. Right. With, right. you know, well, Dried chickpeas. Dried sea chickpeas. salt. They're good. Hmm. Sounds like some hippy-dippy shit. Roasted chickpeas. It sounds like it, but you know what? They're, they're salty snacks. Like... Sure. I don't know. It, it, it tastes like any potato chip would. Yep. All right, Chip, we're out. Thank you for having me.